Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Professor Douglas Kerr. Professor Kerr is Honorary Professor of English at the University of Hong Kong, and today we are discussing his book, Oral and Empire, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor Kerr. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? I joked with my publisher that I wanted to call this book Orwell Upside Down, um, and that's because the thesis of the book is that his experience and understanding of empire is absolutely crucial to our understanding of George Orwell, and it's something that tends to get a bit neglected because most people who read Orwell and study him and know about him uh, gravitate towards the towards the end of his career. You know, he died in 1950. His two most famous books, Animal Farm and 1984, were published in the 1940s. So that's where people, that's where the center of gravity for Orwell's work tends to fall. But I would want, if I can, to move it back much earlier in his career and to look at the presence of experience of empire in his background and his upbringing and particularly in his likely throughout his career but particularly in his early experience his first job after leaving school was when he joined the imperial police in Burma and he served in Burma colonial Burma for five years as a really very young man and thesis of the book is that's where, if there is a key to Orwell, that's where you're going to find it. So I look in particular at his earlier work, um, an early novel called Burmese Days, 1934, and the quite well-known essay narratives, The Hanging and Shooting an Elephant, and then quite a lot of other stuff about Burma that he published in the early years, but also if you then look through the rest of his output, which was quite prodigious, you know, for a man who died quite young, there are 20 volumes of the collected works of George Orwell. All the way through there, I think, in the fiction and the nonfiction, you can find him struggling with the question of empire. That's the thesis. On page three of your book, you state that the UK, in the period prior, the 100 years prior to the Great War, beginning in 1914, was, quote, more Asian than European, unquote. Surely that's a bit of an exaggeration, is it not? Did I say that the UK was more Asian than European? Uh, if I said that, oh, <laughs> if you say so. Um, Actually, you, you didn't use the word, you didn't use the term UK, you used Great Britain. Yes, I think I was probably thinking about the, the, the Britain's understanding with political position in the world, um, it was much more oriented towards its interests in the far overseas, in the empire, particularly in India, in the rest of Asia, and Africa, the Caribbean, and so on, than it was uh, in relation to its European neighbors. After 1815, when they felt that they'd sorted that out, um, they didn't want to get drawn in too much to European issues. As long as the empire was safe and secure, Britannia ruled the waves for the next hundred years after 
1816, they were a world, thought of themselves as a world power rather than a European power. 1914, of course, drags them back to European issues, where in a sense they've been in a sense. So that's it. They were an imperial power. A family like um, all of them, family, remember his, his family name was Blair, and George Orwell was a, a non name that he adopted as a writer. His own family, if you look back to his family history, he's very much implicated in imperial matters, going back a couple of centuries, or more actually, to ancestors who travelled to the Caribbean, um, became plantation owners, revolted slavery, and so on. But also his family's um, experience of imperial administration, um, they were very much a... An imperial outfit, the Blair family, and that went down to his own father, who worked, uh, who was a civil service administrator, worked in India for all his career. Um, in notoriously in the opium department of the British government of India, um, that was his job until he retired and came back, came back to live in England. Um, at the end of that, so it was a quite a natural thing. For Orwell himself, when he left school and he didn't go to university, it's quite a natural thing for him to seek his career in the East. When he got to Burma, he already had uh, his maternal grandmother was already living there. Um, his mother's family had been teak merchants in Burma for a couple of generations. So he, in one sense, he felt quite at home when he got there. So that this is the imperial, which I'm trying to uh, extract from Orwell's writing to correct perhaps an overemphasis um, on Orwell as a kind of a, a man of the Cold War. I mean, that's very important in his career, and indeed he probably coined the phrase Cold War. Um, but to understand Orwell, I think we need to go further back and uh, he had empire figures in his, in his experience and in his thinking. Would it be true to say that you did not necessarily regard the British Empire in the, the best light? Well, uh, yes, it would be true to say that. That's the brief answer. The long answer is that it's a very complicated question. Um, he came to be definitely an anti-imperialist. He wanted to see the British Empire demolished, abandoned, and all other empires, too. Um, and that remained a, a consistent viewpoint right through until his death. Um, however, having said that, it's not such an easy thing to get rid of empire from, the, from, from, from people's thinking. So I'm very interested in the way that his early uh, cultural and political patrimony was tied up with empire and, and imperial experience. And what you find in Orwell is a constant, I think very interesting and very moving dialogue with himself, a kind of struggle with himself over that imperial patrimony. In a sense, Orwell was the kind of, per he was the kind of person that he didn't want to be. So he's throughout his career trying to shed 
the not just the opinions, but maybe the assumptions, the habits, habits of thought and behavior, ways of approaching people, which he had inherited with that imperial history. And I think that, to, to generalize well grossly, that's interesting for me today because when I look around me at this country, the United Kingdom today, that is what we're still doing in a sense. If you walk streets of this country, you won't find anyone, I think, who really wants to go back to um, having a British empire if that were possible. But in many ways, in the culture, it still lingers there. Um, and we've had, uh, particularly in recent years, a lot of debate and discussion, a lot of people getting very angry about the continuation of imperial thinking, perhaps even at a, at a an unconscious level, um, in people in institutions in this country. It's not something that you can unlearn just by snapping your fingers. And even quite late in Orwell's career, you find him catching himself out um, in attitudes which he tried very hard to unlearn and to abandon and to get beyond. So yes, if you it's not entirely clear when it happened, but by the time he left Burma, some would say, or a couple of years after he left Burma, he was a committed anti-imperialist and remained so the rest of his life. That, in a sense, was, was the easy part, the political decision, but how you get rid of um, the empire from your mind, how you, as people sometimes say, now decolonized the mind, that was difficult for him, as it sometimes as it's sometimes it's both the inheritance of colonialism and of the decolonized world. So you would not necessarily agree with people, historians like Niall Ferguson or Jeremy Black, who argue that overall the British Empire was, for lack of a better expression, a good thing, quote-unquote. No, I wouldn't. If if we're going to put it in as bold terms as that, I, I would not. Um, Orwell's position was that it's simply unjust and he said, if you actually get somebody down and ask them, do you really believe that it's okay for one people to hold down another people by force and um, assume their government um, and control of their lives? Nobody really believes seriously in that. That's not to say that the empire didn't produce, um, didn't do some good things. Obviously it did. Obviously it did um, in terms of law and order, in terms of modernization, technology, many of the institutions, um, and so on. But even if it, everything that it, it, that it did produce was wonderful, Orwell thought, even then, it wasn't really a justifiable phenomenon. It wasn't, because it was unfair. It was basically unjust. And that's the piece that he sticks to. So I think he would, that's what he would say to Niall Ferguson. He wouldn't disagree with the list of technological, cultural, that the, the empire had accomplished over the world, but he said radically, at bottom, it's not justifiable. It's not just. Yes, but uh, didn't Orwell his, himself sort of change his position in an essay which you make reference to in the book, um, which came out in the summer of 1939, which has a title which I, I cannot repeat. Uh, it's a review of the um, 
Union with Britain Now book by the American writer Clarence Streeth. He makes the Orwell makes the point that um, uh, it's just mere propaganda to argue that the Allies, the British and the French, were morally superior to the Germans, uh, or for that matter, the Japanese or the Italians, when it comes to it, uh, because of the fact of the British Empire holding down hundreds of millions, and the French Empire, for that matter, holding down hundreds of millions of people. But yet, when war came, he did a somersault and became a defender of the empire, at least de facto. I think for Orwell, this was a matter of political priorities. He believed that the worst thing that could happen to the world would be the triumph of Hitler and his Japanese allies, that everyone would suffer from that. So if you look at his, the broadcast that he made on the BBC to Indian listeners during the war, he's trying to make what for him must have been a quite uncomfortable argument, since he was indeed in favor of the, of the end of the empire in, in India. What he's saying to his Indian listeners is, look, first of all, the war has to be won, the war against Hitler and Japan. Um, you might remember that Gandhi, for example, was saying that if the Japanese invaded India, which they came very close to doing, um, they should not be resisted. And all thought this was wrong. That the Japanese need, needed, India needed to turn back the Japanese to defeat. The uh, I said before that the kind of internal struggle going on in Orwell, and that was one of the um, instances of it. So it's not entirely a flip flop. It's not entirely a sort of um, hundred and eighty degree turn. Um, it's a question of priority. He was an anti-fascist and he was an anti-imperialist. He felt that you had to deal with the fascism first, and then you could deal with the imperialism. What do you mean when you say on page 56 that it's best to historicize Orwell? Well, I think it's best to historicize everyone. Um, in Orwell's case, quite a lot of the way that Orwell's name is invoked um, in contemporary debate, um, it's often all as a kind of like a chess piece, which has moved around. Would he have approved of this? Would he have disapproved of something else? Um, it's just a matter of remembering, I think. You know, Orwell was born in 1903, but so he's not really our contemporary. And he lived in a world which is not the same as our world, responded to issues and challenges which are not identical to ours. One way in which I try to historicize all in, in this book is to place him in the class of the Anglo-Indians. I have quite a lot to say about this in the book. Um, the Anglo-Indians were a tribe or sept of the English middle class, um, quite prominent and numerous in Orwell's time, but they have now almost utterly disappeared from British national life because they were the officer class of the empire in the East. Um, the British often used, spoke of the East and India as if they were synonyms. Uh, Orwell often, when he's talking about Burma, described it as India. So the Anglo-Indians were those, the officer class of those people who had worked in British Asia, in Southeast Asia, 
uh, in India, Ceylon, and so on. Um, both the military officer class, the administrative officer class, um, and the commercial officer class, if you can, if you can think of such a thing. These people um, went out, had their careers in India, where they lived um, pretty privileged lives for the most part, working hard perhaps, often in difficult circumstances. Um, but they were definitely a ruling class in India. Then when their career came to an end and they retired, some stayed there, but most of them came back to the home country um, and retired there. And were very, they were very recognizable as a, a rather clannish, rather reactionary uh, tribe of the English middle class. These are the people to whom Rudyard Kipling appealed in his writing, and whom he often writes about with great respect. Uh, all of them, as I said a bit earlier on, came from a, a family that had worked in the empire both commercially and uh, administratively for generations. He belonged to the Anglo-Indian class or tribe, and he inherited from his family many attitudes um, fairly reactionary attitudes, I suppose we would call them nowadays, um, which belong to that class. Now, you have to explain this to people in this country today because they have no idea that the Anglo-Indians are. They're gone, they're off the map. Um, but they were important in their time. Um, so that's Orwell's starting place, if you like. And much of his career is a kind of a sort of purging of many of the Anglo-Indian attitudes that he had simply inherited perhaps without thinking of them very much. He's not completely against that class, actually. He finds quite a lot to admire in it, just as there were things about the empire which were worth preserving, which they did achievement. Um, he thought that the Anglo-Indians were practical people, that they were problem-solving people, that they were not afraid of things, that they got on with stuff, they were hard-working. All of these qualities he admired and, and tried to share. Um, but it means that his cultural inheritance is something that we need to, we have to re-establish. It's not, as if, not the same as saying, oh, such and such a, a person came from an, the urban proletariat. We kind of understand what that is and, and still is. Um, the Anglo-Indians have gone. So we need to bring them back into history to help us understand where we're coming from. So that's historical. What did Orwell mean by race? Okay, this is another difficult question. Um, we could broaden it out and say, what did people mean when they used the word race in Orwell's time? And the answer is, it was almost anything. Um, race could be a word for color, black. It could be a word for nationality. It might be a word for different ethnic groups. Um, Orwell's view about the, the British overseas is that they divided the world racially. They thought in, in racial terms. Um, there was a difference between uh, Indians and, and Brahminians, for example, and yet, there are some British 
just think of those those as, as Orientals is different from us. There was, as you know, in the 19th century, a scientific theory of race. It was considered scientific at the time. We wouldn't consider it so now. But it seemed to many people that science had shown that human beings were divided into different races, that some races were more advanced than others, and that therefore the more advanced races had a duty or an obligation to look after and to control the less advanced races. There's a kind of there's a Darwinianism, there's a social Darwinianism behind it. Um, it was widely believed that ra the races were naturally anatomically different. Always very funny. Um, the, you know what I mean by the pith helmet. Um, if you see pictures of some Europeans in the East, and particularly, actually, there's a famous picture of Orwell himself as a young man at the police training college in Mandalay, where he spent his first year in Burma. All of the white, actually not only the white, all of the trainee officers in that picture is carrying a pith helmet or solar topi, which was a, a rather grand and large uh, piece of headwear, which all the British in the East wore, and they wore it because they had been told that there was an anatomical difference between Europeans and Orientals, that Orientals had a thicker skull, and that therefore it was okay for them to go out in the midday sun to ignore part of it. Whereas the British, who had a thinner skull, had to wear a solar topi, otherwise they would be subject to sunstroke. This is, as a matter of fact, absolute nonsense. But Orwell thought it was a telling detail because it showed that white people in Burma were encouraged to think of themselves as having a natural difference from other races. And nowadays, we would find that you'd find that an absurd um, <clears throat> proposition, I think. And the idea of race doesn't really stand up because it's a bit like Mercury. You can't get hold of it. It's always slipping away. Um, <clears throat> so he, he thought that Ideas of race stood behind the way the British thought about the world and about their empire. That races were naturally different, just as different breeds of animals, you know. Races were naturally different, that uh, some races were more evolved. This is where the dominant comes. Some races were more evolved than others. And this explained why those races, and he's thinking obviously, thinking obviously, the white races, the Europeans, um, because of these racial advantages, they had been successful in the world, spread all over the place, um, become richer, more scientific, more advanced, more powerful, um, and uh, more imperial. So mm -hmm. that there was a kind of natural justification to the invasion and control of some people in some races by other races. So he wants to remove that. His point is, in effect, there's no, there's, no such, there's no such scientific thing as different races. And he applies this not only to the question of Burmese and Indians and Europeans and so on, but also in Europe, for example, to the question of the Jews. Um, there are 
cultural groups which are Jewish, but they're not uh, in nature any different from anybody else. Um, and yet prejudice builds up against what is perceived to be an alien race with all the catastrophic tragic consequences that we know about. What was Orwell's relation to literary high modernism of Eliot, Joyce, and Pound? He, uh, as a young writer, when he came back, you know, he was for five years with the Imperial Police in Burma. When he, when he came back to England, he decided he wanted to be a writer. One of the first things he did was to go and live in Paris. <laughs> that is immediately an indication of, of his allegiance to or aspiration to modernism because Paris was the capital city of modernism. It's where Joyce was and Hemingway and, and Gertrude Stein, Picasso and all the artists. So as a young man of that generation, he was an enormous admirer of T.S. Eliot, of particularly of James Joyce, because Orwell saw that his own gifts didn't really run towards poetry, but towards narrative fiction. Um, and in some of his early writing, you see him uh, experimenting with what are clearly uh, modernist tropes, which he felt from uh, um, Joyce and the rest. There was another aspect of him, an abiding aspect of, of his work, which admired writers who we wouldn't, who were contemporaries, but we wouldn't consider really to be modernist, people like um, Somerset Maugham, for example, um, Orwell admired for qualities which were, in a sense, the opposite of modernist, um, qualities such as simplicity, directness, lack of adornment, narrative grasp, and so on. As he grows, as he develops, he he develops misgivings about the writers of the modernist generation. Once the 30s have got into full flow, where the political situation has very greatly darkened, Orwell was afraid that the modernist writers whom he admired so much had not set a very good political example. Not necessarily that, that they were extremely right-wing, of course some of them were, but that they didn't, they weren't responsible enough towards history. I think that's how he needed to put it. They didn't take enough active interest in the political predicament of the 1930s. Whereas the people of the generation, thinking about, you know, W.H. Jordan, Stephen Spender, Louis Ladies, that lot, were all, all of them wore their politics on their and was against the high modernists um, on the grounds of what he, what he calls the lack of responsibility that they weren't um, politically committed enough. Um, as, he gets, as he goes on through the 1930s into the war, I think he somewhat revised his opinion again. But these people, he's responding to them, of course, as his contemporaries. Um, and he maintained his early admiration for T.S. Eliot, for example, he worked quite closely with when Orwell was at the BBC. He frequently invited Eliot to come and make programs with him to be interviewed, to talk about poetry and so on. So they're on the scene for him. I don't think nowadays, in the long view, we would consider Orwell 
himself to be a modernist. Um, and that's partly because his own literary ambitions were, as he says, just because of the circumstances were more more political. But these are the great writers that he started out with. So he retains his respect for them, I think. It's the same with others of his generation, Auden, for example. It's very much the same. What was Orwell's opinion of uh, what he termed the good, bad poet Kipling? There's a famous uh, obituary essay on Kipling written in 1936 when Kipling died where Orwell describes his own vacillation about Kipling. He says something like, and I'm going to get these figures wrong, I loved Kipling when I was 16. I despised him when I was 19. I admired him again when I was 22. Then I hated him. Now I rather admire him. So talk about flip-flops. That's where he flip-flopped. He thought that uh, Kipling is the great, he's the great imperialist, I mean great in every sense, actually. He's the great imperialist writer. Um, and for Orwell, as for many people of, of his class, actually not only of his class, Kipling was a writer that he first met when he was a child. Because Kipling's writing for children um, were often on the on the shelves of, uh, of families at the time when Orwell was growing up. The Jack stories, um, Puckapoots, you know, uh, uh, those books, and, and there's the Jungle Book, were have been sort of imbibed with mother's milk. So Kipling was, was there for him all through his life. Um, he says in a later essay on Kipling, uh, you, you can't pretend that Kipling's views were anything other than disgraceful. So Kipling's espousal and support for what the British were doing in India was something that Orwell couldn't accept. On the other hand, Kipling is one of the great uh, chroniclers of the life of, of the Raj, of British India, not only of the white people in it, but also the Indians, who Kipling actually knew better than almost any other uh, Europeans in India, I would think. And he was, as all recognises, a writer of very great natural gift um, in poetry and, and in narrative too. So there's another ambivalence for you. Here is the great Anglo-Indian bard whom, for whom Orwell in some ways has a great respect, but whom, on the other hand, he actually despises. Um, so that's, that's part of the, uh, the position in which he found himself was often an ambivalent one, just because of the circumstances and because of who he was. So Chipling is part of that, and he keeps returning to Kipling. It's something of an, an obsession. And I would say that Kipling and Orwell are, in a sense, two, two sides of a British response to empire. And they have a lot in common, as well as being, in a sense, antagonists. I doubt if Kipling had even heard of Orwell when he died in 1936. Um, but for Orwell, Kipling is he's a monumental figure on the landscape. And what did Orwell think of uh, E.M. Foster's novel, Passage to India? Uh, He says that he thinks this is the the best novel written about British India. And I think surely he's right, wouldn't you say? Um, I would, yes. In some way, yeah. 
in, in some ways, his own novel, Burmese Days, which I admire very much, actually, I think it's a great novel. Um, it's often got, it's got Forster in his sights. Um, Orwell says somewhere, why is there so little good British writing about India? And he answers himself by saying, well, actually, most uh, English writers who are any good couldn't bear very long in British India because it was so horrible. Foster was a bit different. Foster had experience of the, living in India, though he didn't actually live under the British Raj. He lived in one of the nominally independent princely states. Um, so it's a slightly different India that he's talking about. Um, but Orwell was a, was a great admirer of Foster, and not only for passage to India. Foster was a, was a kind of he's a kind of icon for um, young writers of, of Orwell's generation, uh, W.H. Auden too, who in some respects has very little in common with Foster, uh, looked to him as a kind of sort of paternal literary figure and very important. Is it not a bit reductionist to attribute everything in Orwell's five years in the Orient uh, in terms of his future as a writer. I'm thinking of, for example, the idea that to some extent the metaphor of um, employed in the animal farm could be attributed to Orwell's uh, experience as a police officer in Burma. When in fact, uh, I think the um, metaphor comes from Gessing's, Gessing's novel Demos. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I, I don't think it's entirely fair to, to describe this as reductive. I'm not saying that uh, Animal Farm is simply about Burma, not a bit of it. But what I'm saying is that all those later work, after he'd left the East behind him, is still propelled, is still informed by that Eastern experience. For example, in... Um, the Road to Wigan Pier, remember, that's the documentary book in which he goes to the relatively deprived north of England, and he talks about the lives of working people there. Um, he gives a bit of autobiography, and he says that when he came back from the East, he looked on working people in England as a kind of analogy to the colonized people of the East. That's a very interesting, very problematic thing to say, because in many respects, of course, they weren't an analogy. In many respects, they were different, but he worked his way through that. Oh, um, I would, I would say actually that the one connection that we can make, which I think is very interesting, is the conception of uh, the of people as animals. Okay, animal farm is allegory about a farmyard in which all the animals rebel unsuccessfully in the end. Um, against the farmer. Um, that analogy of people with animals is one that he had been making right back from the uh, from his his time in Burma, and I think that that helps to propel the imagination, which he then fills into this farmyard story, which is about, as almost all his fictions are, it's about a failed revolution. It's about a rebellion which can't succeed okay the allegory is quite specifically and very cleverly 
based on the history of the Russian Revolution. Anyone can see that. Um, but the idea of the, the sort of the hopeless rebel, the failed rebel, is one which is comes up in in all his fictions, going all the way back to not just Burmese days, but clergyman's daughter, keep the Aspidist for flying, and so on. And I think that that sense of the downtrodden who are hopeless, who have, who have no hope of a successful lasting revolution, I think that's something which probably begins in Burma. Because when all was in Burma, there were there was quite a lot of um, anti-colonial uh, feeling and indeed action, uh, but it never came to anything. If you look at the riots against the British and Burmese days, they're actually quite easily put down and it reverts to um, the status quo ante. So that pattern of rebellion and its failure is one that goes reaches way back to his early life, I think. But look, I'm not saying that... Um, Yes, go on. No, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't want to give the impression that I'm beating the drum for a single interpretation of, of uh, Orwell's work that uh, overrules all the others. Of course, I'm not doing that. I mean, nobody in their right mind would do that. What I'm trying to do is I uh, try to explain at the beginning is to offer a kind of mild corrective um, to the way in which Orwell's work has hitherto, to a large extent, not entirely, to a large extent, um, understandings of Orwell's work have not paid enough attention to this aspect of his, of his work. Okay, now he was very much involved in, God knows, in European politics in the 1930s and 1940s. He fought in Spain and all the rest of it. Um, so these things are very much at the forefront. But I think even when he was in Spain, uh, his earlier experience, because we don't forget our earlier experience, do we? It doesn't just get locked up in a box somewhere. It lives with us. Um, so that his experience in Spain is also informed by his early experience in, in the East. So you wanted to offer an alternative to the exclusive view of Orwell as a uh, writer of the of the Cold War or the pre-Cold War. Uh, what I hope I'm offering is in a modest way, an enrichment of that reading through taking account of this imperial theme. That's what I'm doing. Um, so 1984, an animal farm, clearly overwhelmed by the notion of Stalin. Um, <clears throat> but Orwell's understanding of the misuse of political authority, of violence and so on, goes back to the time when he himself was the one who wielded the baton. You know, he was he was a policeman whose job had been part of to put down riots and to uh, police dissidents and so on. So I think that part of his life should not be forgotten. And you can find, if you go looking for it, I think you find it all the way through all. And I'm not thinking only of the, of the fiction. There it is there in the fiction. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Kerr, for being so kind as to speak with us today. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Kerr, very much.